What a joy to see you with us this morning as we come together to worship the God, our God in many ways, and one of those ways is worship through hearing. And before we get to the word that we will be hearing this morning, I just want to give a couple other announcements. One of them is, as you walked in, you may have noticed there are some Operation Christmas Child boxes that are unfolded that are out there near the cafe window. If you would like to participate this year in Operation Christmas Child, we would ask that you take those and you actually fold those up and you fill them and then you bring them back here in the next couple of weeks. But I also want to share with you something that I was able to learn as I spoke to Operation Christmas Child this year, and that is um, one of the challenges they are dealing with right now is that shipping is very, very expensive, much more than it was two years ago. So they're asking people who usually fill more than one box, either maybe your family does two or three, uh, they're asking people who fill more than one box to actually do that online instead. So take one physical, take it, fill it up, and bring it back here. But we would also ask that if you want to do multiple, you go online to Samaritan's Purse and you fill up a box digitally where they will ask you questions about what you would like to put into the box and then they will pack it in India or Pakistan or Nigeria and then they will ship it out to their regional locations so that they are not shipping containers and containers and containers across the ocean. They said that shipping has nearly tripled since December of 2019. So they really are asking that we, instead of just doing the physical boxes, also do the digital ones as well. And that would be a huge help and another way to spread the gospel well. So if you would like to take part in that, go ahead and take some of those boxes with you today and bring them back, like I said, in the next couple of weeks. The next thing that I'd like to share with you is that we are in the process here at Gateway Church of working through our bylaws and constitution. About two and a half years ago, the church put the bylaws and constitution into what is known as abeyance, meaning that it has been put on hold for the purpose of restructuring. That's a three-year process, and what that means is we are coming to the end of the time at which we have the freedom to not be under the uh, old bylaws and constitution and need to establish a new one. So what I have for you today is a copy of the bylaws and constitution here on the piano, and that is for those who are members of the church who will be voting on that. If you are a member, we have one printed out with your household name labeled on there. We did only print one per household, being that they are quite long and there's many pages. So if you would like, afterwards, Gideon and Ariel are going to come right up here to the table, uh, to the piano, and if you are a member of the church, please come forward, and they will help you to get one for your family. So we want to make sure that you have the, an awareness of what's in those. We will be voting on November 10th at our uh, fall business meeting on those constitution and bylaws. So if you have any questions or thoughts on that that you would like to discuss before that business meeting, please be sure to reach out to me as soon as possible so we can have discussions through what you're reading. So, with all of that in mind, let's now turn our attention to God's Word. Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. One of the most important roles in the life of the church is the role of deacon. Currently, there are zero deacons at Gateway. So, for the next three sermons, we are going to consider from God's Word exactly what a deacon is and how, to how they should operate in the life of the body. The very best place in the whole Bible to learn about the requirement and the role of the deacon is actually found in the book we have been studying, 1 Timothy and in chapter 3. That's where we're going to be for the next two weeks. However, before we even get there, we need to go back to the very beginning, to the very first deacons, to discover their origins. 
Why? Because origins reveal nature, purpose, limitation, and function. Right now, we're studying through the book of Genesis on Tuesday nights at the home Bible study at, my, at the parsonage at the house. And uh, in the book of Genesis, we find the origin of many things. We find the origins of light and life and law and men and women and marriage and sin and death, language, government, so much more. But as we see in our culture, when Genesis is forgotten or when it is rejected, the nature, purpose, limitation, and function of all of those other things are distorted and perverted. So in order to properly grasp the role of the diaconate, we need to first take some time to jump back to the very beginning, back to Acts chapter 6, in order just to understand their nature, their purpose, their limitation, and their function. Now let's ask the Lord before we do this to guide our study today, that he would give us understanding and that we might operate according to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you have not just given us the church to figure out on our own, to operate however we would. For, Lord, we would make a mess of things quickly. But, God, we thank you so much that you have given us clear instruction in your word about how to best serve you and how your kingdom can advance faithfully. So, Lord, we pray that today as we come to your word and we seek to understand the origin of deacons and their purpose and their, their obligations to the church, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand rightly Give us wisdom, give us clarity, give us knowledge, we pray. But God, we pray all of these things so that we might serve you best. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our plan of attack this morning is going to be very simple. We're just going to consider the following three points from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. First, we're going to consider growing pains. Then we're going to consider God's priorities. And finally, we will consider guiding principles. Let's start with growing pains. When children are growing up, they naturally experience pain in their legs as they extend and the ligaments and the bones are expanding. Eventually, they're going to reach their maximum, but during the interim, there's a lot of stretching that occurs. Now, you know what I'm talking about. How many of you felt growing pains when you were growing up? A good number. Mostly mostly men, actually. Interesting. Um, I certainly did. And when you have an organization of any kind and it grows, especially when it grows rapidly, there are changes that have to take place in its structure in order for it to continue to function well. To use business terminology, the early church was kind of like a a small startup, and they rapidly became like a multinational conglomerate. But the church is certainly not a business, nor will it ever be a business, nor should it operate like a business, and its success cannot be attributed to anything other than the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So let's do a quick recap here of the growing pains that were experienced in the church so far in the book of Acts leading up to uh, chapter 6. We first find that there was just a group of 120 disciples. They were in the upper room waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, And when he arrived, the apostles went outside into the marketplace, and they declared the gospel, and 3,000 people were saved after hearing Peter's sermon. That is a massive amount of growth in one day. And that was starting at a high point that continued on for a short time until Peter and John healed a lame man, and they were rewarded by that 
for that by being arrested and then imprisoned and then tried by the religious rulers. But the threats against the church did not cause it to shrink. Rather, it only caused the people of God to turn deeper to prayer. And the threats did not stop and did not hinder and did not slow the church. Rather, it stimulated even more growth. But then there was an attack from the inside. Two swindlers, Ananias and Sapphira, in trying to keep money from the church by bringing sin into the process, lied, and for that, they were both struck dead. From a worldly perspective, that's not the best way to win friends and influence people. That is not the best way to grow an organization. The church was certainly not seeker-sensitive, yet in spite of God's holiness being displayed in the church by the death of Ananias and Sapphira, it did not cause the church to falter, it did not cause the church to slow, it did not cause them to shrink, it actually produced even more growth. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Then the apostles were imprisoned again, and they were tried, and they were beaten for preaching the gospel. And this time, the threats were not limited to Peter and John, but to all 12 of the apostles. But they were not swayed. And chapter 5 closes with these words, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Which brings us now to our text this morning. Notice in verse 1 it says, Now in these days, these days when the, the people are teaching more than ever, the church is growing more than ever, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, here we see that expansion, we see the growth, then we see the growing pains. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember that many of the people who were part of the early church in Jerusalem were not actually citizens of Jerusalem. A great number of them had actually made their homes and their wealth in other parts of the empire. And in fact, Acts chapter 2 informs us that there were Jews from at least 15 different nations that were hearing the gospel in their own language in that marketplace when Peter was preaching the gospel for that first time. These men and women heard the gospel, and they were saved, and they chose to stay in Jerusalem rather than going back to their own hometowns. And these people obviously had great need because they had not planned to remain in Jerusalem. Their expectation was not to be there indefinitely, so they had not made provision to uh, attend to themselves for that long. They didn't bring enough food. They didn't bring enough money. Remember back then, your wallet did not have any plastic. It was a bag full of coins. And they didn't travel with a lot of money most of the time because that was the way to make yourself a big target for thieves. This was the inciting factor in some people selling off their possessions, remember. They did this in order to house and clothe and feed those who were not local to the church. The church seems to have organized some kind of a delivery method for getting food to those people who were in need, to those people who were hungry. However, as we see here in verse 1, there were some people who were being overlooked. Remember, the official language of the Roman Empire was Latin, but the most common language of the empire was Greek. Greek-speaking Jews, those who did not speak Hebrew at all, were known as Hellenists. And most of the Hellenists were doing fine, but the widows... The ones who were among their rank, they were not doing fine. They were being neglected. Now, I want to zoom in on the word that's used here in the Bible, this word, neglect. This indicates that there was an oversight. 
someone was oblivious to something that they were supposed to do. Now, this word does not indicate there was any malice. It does not indicate there was any animosity. It is not as though the apostles were acting with some kind of a racist motive to intentionally refuse these widows any food. There was just a language barrier that would have posed a challenge to them. And more than that, there was a cultural challenge that women had limited ways to publicly communicate with men. But this is a huge issue. To this point, the church has always been described by Luke as a united front. They were of one mind. The people loved each other, and they gave themselves to serve one another. Chapter 4, verse 32 describes the church this way. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. When a faction in the church is genuinely overlooked and genuinely hurt, they have a variety of ways that they could respond. They could respond like we heard earlier from Steve. Could respond with anger, maybe shouting or passive-aggressive comments to undermine the leadership, or maybe gossip or slander, many others. But the church did exactly what they should do. Instead of letting the neglect produce anger or bitterness, they addressed it head-on. And those who had been the subject of hurt voiced their legitimate complaint, and the complaint was heard. There will be some times when someone in the church will hurt you. Sometimes it's intentional. That does happen. But most of the time, it's not. So do not demonize that other person in your mind, and do not assume their motives. And do not let it continue to bother you and fester in your heart. Simply do what we are told in Matthew chapter 18. Follow the pattern. Speak to them one-on-one, and let them know that they've offended you in some way. Let them know that they're straining the relationship. Let them know so that they might seek to restore the relationship right away. And if they do, then you have brought your brother back and you are once again in unity. The Hellenist widows had a legitimate complaint. They were literally going to starve to death if this issue was not resolved. They had no ability to earn income. Now, this is not like the culture we live in today. These women could not get jobs. There's nothing they could do that was ethical to feed themselves. They needed the income. They needed the assistance. And this had a potential to be the very first church split. But I want you to see how this whole event wrapped up in verse 7. Jump to the bottom of our text for today. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So although this situation had the potential to split the early church and hit it like a hurricane, instead it provided an opportunity for correction and restoration. So instead of being destructive, this actually became constructive. It became the conduit for further growth in the church. Let's turn our attention now to our second point, God's priorities. In order to see how this event begins to move from a problem to solution, here's what we see in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now notice that the reasoning of the apostles is based in something that is considered a moral judgment of their calling. They declare it is not right In other words, it is not good. There's something wrong with it. There's a problem if we are the ones who respond. It is not right for us to do this. So let's make clear what they are saying and what they are not saying. They are saying, they are not saying rather, these widows are unimportant. They are not saying this kind of work is beneath us. The very fact that they took swift action to repair the problem reveals that they saw the food distribution as a serious need that had a high priority. 
However, they recognized that their calling had a different priority. As we see in a few minutes, the apostles and the seven servants in this chapter, they become a model for all future churches. The apostles were operating like elders, and they are told to act like the elders are told to act in the epistles. And these seven servants are the prototypical deacons, the first ones who defined that office for us. So I want to make something very clear right up front so that we don't get a misunderstanding of what the apostles are saying. They are announcing that God has prioritized their ministry to be a ministry of the word and of prayer. Remember, at this time, there was no written New Testament. They did not have the book of John. They did not have the book of Romans. They did not have the book of 1 Corinthians or Revelation. They did not have these books to read. So what were they doing? These apostles were going to the Old Testament scriptures, and they were scavenging daily to discover what exactly does this teach us about Jesus? How is it that Christ is found here in the book of Isaiah or in the book of Numbers? They were scouring those texts so that they might teach rightly the people of God in the New Testament. And it's important for us to understand that if the widows did not eat, they would die. But if the apostles focused just on that, the church would die of spiritual malnutrition. One of the most common words that I use when I'm counseling people is the word priorities. We've all been given responsibility by God. We've all been given things that we are called to do and carry out. And we all have the limitations of a 24-hour day. So it becomes necessary to determine how much time to give each thing on our list. Now, please note that God prioritized both of these needs. He does not say that either one of them are insignificant. Please take note that he cared in the way that he organized the church for both of these needs. However, he has set apart and he has gifted different people to different tasks. Verse 4 reveals that the central calling of the apostles, and later to be understood for those who are elders, was not to the waiting of tables, but was to prayer and the ministry of the word. From October 3rd to October 9th, we had a group of men here, and one of them brought his wife with them actually as well, who were coming up from Mississippi to help us work on various aspects of the church. For those who are sitting up there in the balcony, I hope you like the new um, risers that they built. They put all of those together themselves, and they also installed the new front door of Gideon and Ariel's house, which is much more stable now than it was prior. And they also did a little bit of work over in the bathroom at the parsonage. These guys came up to serve. They came up to help us. They were a great blessing to us. Uh, this group consisted of four pastors, one deacon, and one pastor's wife. These guys gave up about a week of their lives to come up here and to do practical work here for our church to serve us. And as they were getting ready to go, when they were leaving, they were talking to me about how happy they were to be able to come up here and do something like this. And one of the things struck me that one of the guys said, he said, we're glad we could do this so that you could get back to all the important stuff. And he said it with his really thick Mississippi accent. Now, as pastors, they were expressing that they themselves have the constant temptation toward working on the tangible needs of the church to the detriment of the spiritual needs of the church. Let me quote something that I said in a sermon at Redeeming Grace Fellowship back in April of 2019. I said, quote, I have become increasingly aware of my significant limitations. There are many days when I feel pulled in many directions. And I look at my list of things that need to get done for the church, and I know for certain that I cannot do all of these things well. I have to confess that one of my biggest failures as a leader has been that I too often attempt to do more than I should with the building, or installing lights, or painting, 
to the detriment of the preparation for teaching and for preaching, end quote. Those words are just as true now as they were then. I want you to understand that I like doing those things. I actually enjoy it. But part of the reason that I enjoy doing some of those things is because I can see the results of them. Okay, we have a project in front of us. I have to do the work. I can put these boards together. I can paint them or whatever, and it's done. But with spiritual things, it's never done. The work is always continuing. There is never a conclusion. So we continue to work immensely and intensely. I want you to understand that these words that are being spoken of here in this text are incredibly important for all those who are set aside for pastoral ministry. We are called to prioritize the preaching of the word and prayer. So what are you called to prioritize as a member of the church? Romans chapter 12 verses 6 through 8 helps us answer that very question. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, if it's the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity to the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And we see if you continue to read there in Romans chapter 12, there are many other ways that he tells us that we can serve. So here's the deal. If you are able to serve someone in the church without compromising other ministries, just do it. If you're able to give somebody a ride or jump that person's car or take a person to the airport or fix that broken thing in the church that just bothered you for a long while, then do it. Now, I don't think that most people fall into this error, but it is possible to swing too far in the direction of only serving the church to the detriment of your family or other responsibilities. But I would just say, do not make excuses in order to avoid serving one another. Well, that's not my job. I'm not the pastor. That is one of the most detrimental things that happens to churches is when people begin to think that way. Or, it's not my job. I'm not an elder. Or, I'm not a deacon. But also ensure that you organize your life in such a way that the most important responsibilities that you have before God are not falling through the cracks. Point number three, guiding principles. Let's see the way that the apostles handled this growing pain in verses three through six. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set aside before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is the earliest example we have in the Bible of the office of deacon. The word deacon literally translates into the English word as servant. The apostles were consumed with serving people with the ministry of the word, and these seven who were chosen were set apart because they were already the kind of people who were caring for people in their physical needs. What we need to do for the next few minutes is to look at this passage and to determine what we can glean in terms of rightly ordering our church so that we look like God has called us to look. And so let's consider three things quickly. First, here's something very important. We have to consider the character of these men. These men needed to be, quote, of good repute. This meant that their reputation was of highest respectability. They had good conduct. They had to be evidence by the Holy Spirit that he was working in their lives and that the word of God had produced wisdom in them that could be seen from a distance. One of the temptations that we can fall into when we're searching for somebody for a role such as a deacon is we can look for somebody who has the highest level of earthly skill, 
oh, that guy is really good at fixing things. Maybe he should be a deacon. One of the temptations that we fall into is by looking for earthly skill rather than spiritual qualities. As the church grew and spread across the Roman Empire, there needed to be a lot more instruction about how to identify and how to establish elders and how to establish deacons, and Paul does just that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that is what we are going to look at in the next two sermons. But for now, we need to see that when searching for a deacon, we are not necessarily looking for the most skilled individual, but for spiritually mature individuals. Secondly, consider the scope of their ministry. Consider who it is that the deacons were set apart to serve. Their stated role was to care for the needs inside the church. This pattern exists in a variety of forms throughout the Bible. For example, when there's a famine and money is raised, it was raised only for those who were in the church. When provisions are sent from Philippi to Jerusalem to help the church there, they are sent not to all of the people who are suffering. They were sent exclusively to the people who are in the church. There is certainly a place in the church to operate in relation to the practical needs of the outside world, but when it comes to deacons, their explicit role is to focus on the needs of the body within the church. And for this reason, at Gateway, when there is a ministry outreach or evangelism event or missionary endeavor, it's going to be led by the directive of the elders and carried out by the congregation, and although deacons can certainly be involved and assist, That is not the purpose or goal of their ministry. Thirdly, consider that they were congregationally appointed. Gateway is growing. I think many of you looking around would say, yes, that seems to be true. Gateway is growing, and Gateway is experiencing growing pains. And one of the ways to care for the needs of the body at this time is to appoint deacons. And that's going to exemplify the standards set forth here in the the first deacons. We will select those who fall in line with what we see here in Acts chapter 6. But what's going to happen is not that I'm just going to tell you, hey, guess what? These are your new deacons, and I would, you know, knight them or something here on the stage. No, that, that's not going to happen. I don't unilaterally declare somebody to be a deacon. Rather, the entire body takes part in that affirming process. We see that the congregation had involvement in the process here, even in Acts chapter 6. Now, notice that the apostles brought the entire church into that process, and in this instance, the church found them, and they gave their names to the elders, and the elders approved them and set them, uh, set them in place. So as members of the church, you are responsible to be involved in the locating and the affirming process of deacons. So let me share how that process is going to work moving forward here at Gateway Church. Step one, if there is someone that you believe meets the criteria for being a deacon, please share that with the elders. At this time, there's just one elder, which means please share that with me. The elders will consider if that person is spiritually mature and in alignment with the qualities listed in Titus and 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then that brings us to step two. If the elders believe that they meet the qualifications, then the elders will approach them and ask them to consider serving. And when we do that, we explain the role to them, we explain the qualifications according to Scripture, we explain the responsibilities, and we ask carefully for them to consider praying before deciding on this commitment. We ask them to ensure that they are capable of the time and energy necessary, and if they are married, we ensure that their spouse is involved in praying through that with them before determining to serve. Step three, If the person agrees to serve, then the elders will officially nominate the individual to the church, and then you take part in that by approving or denying them by way of a vote at a church business meeting. And when it says in verse 6 that the apostles laid their hands on them, it's a way of saying that they commissioned these people to service. 
This process is already underway here at Gateway Church. Next Sunday, I am going to be presenting to you a group of, of people that will be deacon candidates, candidates, and that they will be voted on on November 10th here at our next business meeting. A deacon, you should know, just like an elder, does not have an indelible mark on the soul. One of the big differences between Christians and Roman Catholics is that we do not believe that there is some kind of a mystical transformation that takes place on a person if they become a pastor or an elder or a deacon, etc. So, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, if there is a priest who is discovered to have a, uh, broken many laws and has violated the, uh, a child, many children, for example, that person can never be removed from the priesthood. They cannot be unpriested. They must remain a priest forever, according to their doctrine. Similarly, if they are a deacon in the Roman Catholic Church, it does not matter what they do. They are considered a deacon for eternity because of what they consider the indelible mark of the soul. We do not have that in Christian theology because it is not in the Bible. No, that's not the way this works. Rather, deacons are made for a purpose and for a time. So here, the way that that works at Gateway Church is to vote on deacons for a three-year term, and once that term has expired, the deacon can be nominated by the elders for another three-year term, which must be affirmed by the members. However, after six years of serving as a deacon, we do require that there will be a sabbatical, which is a year of rest for the seventh year, and that after that, they are eligible to come back and serve another six years if they would like. We'll do this sabbatical year basically for two main reasons, though. First, we don't want to burn people out. We want to make sure that we give people adequate rest. Six years of serving in this way is a significant sacrifice on behalf of the church. So a year of rest is well-earned and well-deserved. Secondly, we desire to remind the church that anyone should be moving in the direction of spiritual maturity. So, especially men, I want to say to you, if you have been a Christian for several years, you should be striving to be the kind of mature and respectable servant-hearted people that the church would look to and say, that man is such a servant, I want to deputize him to care for the needs of the body. But maybe you're sitting there right now and you're saying, okay, so what? I mean, thank you so much for giving me a history lesson and for showing me the inner workings of this church and some of the reflections of the new bylaws, the way that they will operate, but what am I supposed to do with this in my personal life? I recognize that this sermon is much more of a teaching than preaching. It's much more about information than proclamation. But please understand that God has given us these details so that we might rightly apply them and that we might consider how God has graciously structured the church for his purposes and for our growth. So allow me instead, though, to leave you with six final applications that will help you in your personal life. First, I want to encourage all of us to be a servant. Just because the deacons exist does not mean that you are exempt from ministering with your gifts. Just because you don't have a title does not mean that you are not expected to serve the brothers and sisters around you. The deacons are not supposed to do all the work themselves. They are just responsible for organizing and ensuring that the work gets done. So don't increase their burden by being lazy. Seek to serve the body well with whatever gifts God has given you. Secondly, be available. The deacons will occasionally call on you to minister in some way. You might get a text from a deacon requesting that you help set up for a weekend event at, at the church. For example, uh, right now we have no deacons, so there's no one to organize the fact that next Sunday after church, we are going to have that celebration for the new memorial park that is opening over there, and we need people to help set up tables and chairs. So what I will do at this point is I will just say, 
Anybody that has enough strength to carry tables and to carry chairs, please join in the work and help. If we had deacons, I would say to the deacons, please organize, but I would not ask the deacons to carry them all themselves. I would ask the deacons, please organize this, and the deacons would reach out to you and say, we need help carrying tables and chairs, and they would ask you to take part in doing that work. Sometimes you'll get a call asking if you can visit someone in the hospital. That is not just a pastor's job, that is a Christian's job. I realize right now that's very challenging because of COVID restrictions, but you may in the future receive a call like that. You may ask, get a call asking to give somebody a ride to church or a number of any other things. And whenever the need arises and they call on you, please know deacons have been deputized by you and by the rest of the church so that they can do the work of mustering an army of prayerful believers and diligent servants to the forefront of the ministry field. So they are basically operating as a way, as corporals, to put together those who will go out into the field. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to be proactive. Once we do have deacons in place, don't wait for the deacons to reach out to you to find ways to serve. Reach out to them and ask how you can get involved. People sometimes ask me, how can I help the church? And my answer is often, I don't know. Like, I have no idea right now what you can do. But I know that there are a lot of things to do. I just don't know exactly what they are at the moment. I can't put it in, in order in my brain. I don't have a checklist. I don't know exactly what to say. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Honoring a person sometimes looks like finding ways to care for them and to serve them. So, when we do have deacons, one of the things they often do is they create a list of things that need to get done in the church. And then when you ask, how can I help? They can say, hey, here's a bunch of stuff that needs to get done. Can you help with any of this? So be proactive and seek them out and say, how can I be of assistance? Fourthly, be prudent. By this, I mean that it is your God-given responsibility as a church to faithfully and truthfully examine the deacon candidates. Do not just vote yes for the sake of voting yes. Look for those people who are Christ-like and truly consider the character of those people that you are asking to lead you in this way. Do not approve people if they fail to meet the standards set forth in Scripture, many of which we will look at over the next two weeks. Fifth, be growing. Everyone in the church should be striving to meet the moral criteria set forward for deacons. Whether you're ever going to be a deacon or not doesn't matter. You are called to Christian maturity, and all of the qualifications for a deacon that are set forth in the Scripture are qualifications of character. So it's important that we all begin to grow. The deacon's role is to get practical things done so that the church can set its sights on the gospel without distraction. So learn and grow and mature and carry your cross daily regardless of your title. Sixth, I want to encourage us to be gospel-driven. We often talk about being gospel-centered here at the church. It's something I say often. That means that we are to orient our entire life around the reality of the gospel, but we must also be gospel-driven. And by this, I mean to say that we are propelled to serve one another and push to love one another because of the good news of the gospel. A deacon is a servant, but there is no greater servant than Jesus himself. He is the true prototype of one who came to give of himself. He left the glory of heaven to experience the sufferings of earth. He left the comfort of his throne to endure the cruelty of the cross. He left the sinless city of heaven to be made sin for us. And Mark 10.45 says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate prototype of a deacon. He fed the hungry. He helped the sick. 
He cared for the overlook. He did much of what we consider a deacon's role. If you are in Christ, consider that he has served you. Now, he hasn't physically washed your feet, but he's washed your soul. Just like Lazarus, he went amongst the tombs to call you out of the grave. Jesus touched the leper. He was not made unclean, but instead he made the leper clean. Likewise, he has touched your soul and has not been tainted with your defilement. Rather, he has made you clean by his word. He has washed you white as snow. He has fed you with his word. He has led you like a shepherd. He has bound up your broken heart. He has left you his own armor to wear. He has cultivated you to bear spiritual fruit. He has interceded on your behalf. He has led you through the valley of the shadow of death. He has given you spiritual gifts to use for the sake of the church. He has given you the Holy Spirit. He has united you with the Father. And what is our response to such a king that he would humble himself in this way? The only appropriate response is to be in awe of him and to love him and to worship him with our lives and to serve him by serving one another. Let that be the fuel that propels you to serve one another. Now, there's certainly much more to say regarding deacons and their operation and regulations and their qualifications, but we're going to focus on those things in the next two Sundays. Let me just ask the Lord to add his blessing to this word. Father God, we just give great thanks for your wisdom, in the way that you have designed the church to operate. God, we pray that you would please help us as believers in Christ and as followers of your Son and as children of the Word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to obey it. Help us to operate in accordance with it. Lord, I pray that we would find ways to operate that are perfect and in full accord with the Scripture. Lord, I pray for unity within this body. I pray for servant-heartedness within this body. I pray for a hunger to care for the weak and the lowly and the suffering in this body. And God, I pray that you would ask uh, that you would give provision to those who have those gifts so that they might serve you well and faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.